Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Why can two persons consider the same subject, Jesus Christ, and see two completely different things? There's only one Christ. Whether you believe him to be the Son of God or not, there's only one person, Jesus of Nazareth, and that's it. There's not two or three, or however many opinions of him we have, there's just one, even historically. So why do we see him so differently? Some believe that he is the Son of God, that he is the long-anticipated Christ of the Jews, the Savior of the world, through whom all things were created. Some see Christ that way. And there are others who see Jesus of Nazareth as no more than a mortal who died, disappointed as a false Messiah 2,000 years ago, a Middle Eastern man, a Palestinian, and that is all. There's only one Jesus. So the difference lies not in him. It's in us. It's in our seeing of him. We perceive him differently. So that's a difference in us. It's not a difference in him, whoever he may be. And really the difference boils down to this. Some see Jesus as a man and others see him as a man, but more than a man. And which one describes you? Man or more than a man? We all, whether we're believers or not, see Jesus of Nazareth as a man. Scholarship agrees There are a few who disagree with this. He was a man, and reason can see at least that far. But the reason some of us see him as more than a man is because we come with you as far as reason will go, but then faith takes us beyond that. And we believe that he was not just a man, but more than a man. Thus, the difference of views about Jesus. Faith or not. Seeing or seeing more. You're familiar with this dynamic in common life. If I were to set a wet sloppy fish down in front of you right now, you would see the fish. You would see its fins. You would see its scales. You could point out its eyeballs. But you would see that fish differently from a well-tenured marine biologist who looks at the same fish. But you know that although you're looking at the same specimen, you're seeing very different things. You can see the surface of the fish. You know a few details about fish back from high school. And so you are really seeing the fish. But when that marine biologist who's dedicated decades of his life to study fish sees the fish, he sees what you see and he sees a lot more that you don't see. You see the eye, the scale, the fin, and he sees those things and the peduncle and operculum. And you don't see those things. So you both see the fin, but he sees more than the fin. It's the same when we look at Christ. Everyone sees a man. Everyone. But there are those who only see a man who are, as Scripture says, have a veil set in front of their eyes so that they cannot see any deeper than that. And then there are those where the veil has been ripped away by faith and they perceive in the face of Christ the glory of God. Two views of Jesus. 
And there are both. There are those who see the man and those who see more than the man. And the question this morning is, what do you see when you look at Jesus? Man more than a man. Are you the biologist who sees in the subject of your sight not just the surface, but the intricacies, the rich complexities of this person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Or are you the spectator who sees merely on the surface and moves on? You see one or the other. As we're continuing our way through the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we are continuing the story of Jesus and the two disciples on their way to Emmaus. Jesus has died and resurrected. And now he appears in person to these two disciples. They've been discussing the report of the women who went to the tomb and said he was not there. But these two disciples are doubtful. Could Jesus really have resurrected? He is a man. Is he more than a man? And they struggle to have faith in that. They don't see that yet. But Jesus now, with his identity disguised from them, is walking beside them on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And he's helping them to open their eyes and see Jesus for who he is. They're going to see not just the man, they're going to see more. In other words, they're going to come to believe. So let's continue this story in Luke 24, and we find ourselves beginning in verse 25 today. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Like I said, We're going to do something a bit different this morning. We're going to depart a little bit from this text. This is a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. That takes about two hours walking leisurely. Jesus has come to these two disciples, and it may be that they're halfway through their walk already. This is an hour or two of a discussion, and on their way, Jesus now interprets for them in the space of probably about an hour, the things in all the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, concerning himself, the Christ, that he must die, suffer these things, and be glorified afterward. Since he's doing it in all the scriptures, what we're going to attempt this morning, if you will lend me your stamina, is that we are going to take these same scriptures that they themselves as Jews would have been familiar with, The Old Testament, we call it, they called it the Tanakh. Just a slightly different ordering, but exactly the same books. We're going to take that same canon of scripture, all the scriptures that Jesus speaks of, using the Jewish ordering, which is the order that they had. And we're going to walk through it together in the brief less than an hour that we have here. And I'm going to attempt in a much more terrible way than Jesus would have done to trace to interpret in all the scriptures the things concerning Jesus. 
How did the Old Testament point to Jesus as a Christ who would suffer and who would be glorified afterward? Jesus did that for them. I wish that we had the words recorded, but we don't. And therefore, we ourselves, using the New Testament, are going into the Old to see what are the things concerning Jesus the Christ in the Old Testament. It will not be even close to what Jesus did, but I am sure the themes will be the same. The outlines will be the same. So here we go. And where do we begin? Well, just like in our text, he began with Moses. We are beginning with Moses. I apologize if you're trying to take notes. I may frustrate you because we're going to have to go kind of quickly. We're beginning with the books of Moses. The books of Moses are the first five in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we begin in Genesis, the beginning of the beginning, when God, the only existing being, decides to create a universe, and he does it in seven literal days, six and rests on the seventh, but then mankind, the first man and woman he makes, Adam and Eve, they rebel against him, and therefore this perfect world God had made, Genesis says, is plunged into two problems, guilt before God and corruption. Adam and Eve, and now all of us from the time of our birth, are both guilty enough to deserve an eternity of hell, which is death, but also we are born corrupt with original sin, and therefore we don't turn to God. He has to do that work in us. So anyways, we find that at the beginning of Genesis, now a broken world, guilt and corruption, and so from the very beginning, our need, more than anything else, more than your finances, more than a fence in your backyard, more than a promotion, your need, more than anything else, according to the Bible, is to be saved from the guilt of your offense against God and your inner corruption. But at the very beginning of Genesis, God makes a promise that he will do just that. Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the Christ, reads, as God speaks to the serpent who tricked Adam and Eve, God says, I will put enmity between you, snake, representing the devil, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, it's important, That offspring, he, singular, he, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The devil has ruined us by corrupting our first parents. Now they have guilt and corruption and God promises from the beginning that an offspring of the woman, a descendant of Eve, at some point will come and crush the snake and in doing so will be bitten and therefore die. It's the first promise of a Christ, one to come to deliver us from guilt and corruption. As we continue in Genesis, this line, this offspring is traceable. God is bringing about one specific group of people through whom the Christ will come, the offspring, the deliverer. So he chooses a man named Abraham and he makes promises to Abraham, among them the promise of an offspring. And the offspring will be many people through whom the one offspring, the Christ, will come. Therefore, this people need a land to live on, so he promises Abraham they will have land. And he promises when the one offspring comes, he will, through that offspring, bless 
not just this nation, but all the nations. Abraham finally has a child and God commands him to sacrifice the child. How will there be offspring if Isaac the child is sacrificed? God spares him, but only so that eventually he could bring another offspring that he would not spare. And that would be the Christ. So already in Genesis, the need for salvation and the way we will be saved through the Christ is set. That's Genesis, Exodus. The next book, Abraham's descendants multiply and they are enslaved in Egypt, forced to do hard labor. But God is going to keep his promise of descendants on a land so the one offspring may come. And therefore he sends a man, Moses. The one who wrote these five books. And Moses goes down to the land and executes great plagues to bring the enslaved people out to freedom to the land God had promised them. And the last of these great plagues, you may remember, is when the angel of death passed over the land and the blood of a lamb was smeared on the doorway of certain houses. And anywhere the blood was smeared of a flawless lamb, no death entered that house. And wherever there was not blood, the firstborn died. This would be a picture of what John the Baptist would say of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who will give his blood over our doorways. So that will, the Christ, when he comes, like that Lamb, take away our guilt. But of course, he brings the people out of slavery, but there's still the problem of corruption. Even if some future lamb will deliver us from guilt, what of corruption? So God at Sinai gives to his now freed people a law. And the people optimistically think we can keep this law and therefore receive all of God's blessings. He makes a covenant, keep this law, you'll receive my blessings, but they fail. The law only came to stir up the hornet's nest and show them that they are corrupt. Because you have to see that before you seek salvation from it. And therefore the law comes in. They cannot save themselves. They need someone to save them not only from their guilt, but from themselves. That's Exodus. Leviticus, third book of Moses, continues the law, but now tells us our problem with our sin is it separates us from a holy God. And so animal sacrifices were given temporarily to show that by blood, because life is in the blood, by the giving, the shedding of blood, sins can be atoned for, preparing the way for the Christ to shed his blood. Numbers chronicles now the people with the law and the covenant moving their way to the land of promise, but over and over again, they are failing. They are demonstrating their own corruption. They go 40 years through the wilderness and do not avoid temptation. They fall right into it. They need someone greater than them who can spend 40 days in a wilderness with the devil himself tempting and yet prevail. This will be the Christ. This leads us into Deuteronomy. They are at the very cusp of the land of promise, about to go in. Everything God promised to Abraham seems about to come true. But Moses, who has been leading them, tells them, you are corrupt Therefore, you will not keep your end of the covenant. You need deliverance from corruption. Where will this deliverance come from? Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 18.15, 
He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That prophet will be the Christ. Moving now from the books of Moses, because Jesus interpreted to them everything starting from Moses and the prophets. The Old Testament of the Jewish people was set up as the law of Moses, which we just saw, then the prophets, and then the writings. Three parts. So now we are in the second part, which is called the prophets, which begins, like ours, with Joshua. And Joshua now leads the people. Moses died. He's leading the people now into the land God promised Abraham. And there is a lot of success, also some failure, because Joshua is not the final word. There will be a future Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew name that means the Lord saves. Do you know what the Greek version of Joshua is? It's Jesus. And there needs to be a greater Joshua to deliver his people, not just from the enemies in the land, but from the greater problem, which is idolatry, wayward hearts, corruption. Judges is the next book. It shows corruption again. Now they are in the land, but there's no king and everyone does what's right in their own sight. There is a cycle of God's people turning away from him in their corruption, but then calling out him delivering them from enemies and they turn away again until eventually you get to a very bad place by the end of the book. And the final line is, everyone did what was right in their own sight because there was no king. In other words, They needed a king, a Christ. This leads into 1st and 2nd Samuel. These are the books of the first great king of God's people, King David. When David comes on the scene, in many ways it seems that the promises made about an offspring are being fulfilled. David defeats the enemies of God's people. He is a man after God's own heart. David both suffers as if he were bit on the heel by a snake. He suffers because the king before him, Saul, chases him for the first part of his life to kill him. And after Saul passes, he's glorified to be a great king. As if he crushed the head of the serpent of the enemies of God's people. He drives out the Philistines. Surely this is the Christ who will save us from guilt and corruption and enemies and give us peace. But then David kills a man to steal his wife. And it turns out that David needs a Christ, a savior as much as any of us do. And so we're still waiting. And in these books, God promises to David, I will set a person on your throne who will come from you, one of your descendants upon your throne, and they shall have the everlasting kingdom. So the Christ is still to come, but now will be not only a descendant of the woman, not only a descendant of Abraham, but must be a descendant of great King David. We move then to first and second Kings. These are the stories of what happened after David, and they're not pretty. After David, the country moves further into corruption. There's a civil war, and it splits into north and into south. 
Now they need not only deliverance from guilt and corruption, but they also need someone to unify the people of God back together. It's at this time the great prophet Elijah rises up in the north, seems almost a sort of Christ figure. He calls for righteousness. He suffers quite a lot. Everyone is hostile to him because they are godless. And yet he's glorified, put into a fiery chariot, and he goes up into the skies. But since he's gone... He's not the Christ. He's not sitting on the throne forever. So he's a good picture, but we need a Christ to come. By the end of the book of the Kings, the people, north and south, have been so wicked against God, violated the covenant he made at Sinai so thoroughly that God brings enemy nations in, Assyria and Babylon, and they take them away from the land of promise into captivity. And it seems like God's promise is at risk. If they're not on their land... How will the Christ, the Messiah, come to this people? They're scattered away. At this point, the history pauses, and we go to those books that you and I think of when we think of prophets, the major and the minor prophets. The first and greatest of the major prophets is Isaiah. He prophesied before the exile. When Jesus was speaking with these two people on the road on the way to Emmaus, it's hard to imagine he didn't talk about Isaiah because Isaiah, 66 chapters, has so much to say about the Christ. And so Jesus probably had to be very selective and will have to be very selective here too. Take, for example, just chapter 6 of Isaiah where you have the great vision of the Almighty God and the train of His robe filling the temple with glory and the cherubim crying, Holy, Holy, Holy! The amazing thing is that as Isaiah beholds the glory of the Lord, John chapter 12 says that Isaiah really saw the glory of Christ and spoke about Him. That was the glory of Christ. And that tells us that the Christ is not just a man. He has to be more than a man. The Lord himself. Chapter 7 continues this difficult teaching because it says, A virgin will give birth to a child that will be known as Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And the next Two chapters later in chapter 9, it says this child who's to be born will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Who is this Christ? Who is this coming King? Who is this child? It says, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom, as God had promised the Christ would be. But then chapter 53 comes in and this becomes confusing because is He going to be a great king who will deliver us from our earthly enemies or as chapter 53 says a suffering servant who will die on behalf of God's people to deliver them from their transgressions so the Christ will have glory and he will suffer these things it's all there these are the things Jesus was pointing to on the way to Emmaus it's not something new it was prophesied from Isaiah, we go to Jeremiah, and there we read in chapter 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he'll reign as king and deal wisely. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. This is the Christ. 
the one we are waiting for. And this is the name by which he'll be called, the Lord is our righteousness. How will the Christ deliver us from guilt? He will become our righteousness. Jeremiah also acknowledged that the covenant God made at Sinai with his people, his people could not keep. They were corrupt. How will the Christ deliver them from not just guilt, but corruption? That's their other problem. And Jeremiah foretells that old covenant that didn't work because they were corrupt. It will be replaced when the Christ comes by a new covenant. And in this new covenant, God promises he will write his law on their hearts. No one will say, know the Lord. They'll all know him. He will, through the Christ, not only clear the guilt, but he'll change the heart. Ezekiel also in chapter 36 speaks in the same way of the new covenant, says the spirit of God will come upon his people at that time. And in chapter 37 shows that when the Christ comes, Ezekiel sees a valley full of dry bones, but then the wind or the spirit moves over the bones and they come back together into human living beings, showing that when the Christ comes, he's not just going to clear guilt, he's going to cause rebirth and resurrection to life. We move from these major prophets down to the minor, which the Jewish people know as the 12. These will go through quickly. Hosea, first book of the 12, and we'll just be selective here, includes this line, out of Egypt I called my son, which was a prophecy of what was going to happen with Jesus when he ran from Herod down into Egypt, and then out of Egypt God would call him back to Israel to accomplish salvation. That is about the Christ. In the second chapter of Joel, the next minor prophet, God promised that when the Christ came, he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And when Jesus Christ came and ascended to heaven, he poured out the spirit on all flesh, all his people. The book of Amos predicted a day would come where it would be dark at noon, which took place when the Christ was crucified. Through Amos, God said he would raise up the fallen booth of David and the nations would take shelter under this fallen booth. That booth is Christ through whom all the nations would be blessed. The brief prophecy of Obadiah talks about the promised line through whom the Christ would come. It's not Esau and his descendants Edom. It is Israel, descendants of Abraham. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish as a prediction, a picture, a type of this Christ who had spent three days in the belly of the earth before he resurrected. The fifth chapter of Micah says very clearly that a ruler will come from Judah and that ruler will be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Nahum 1.15 speaks of the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And that peace, that good news, would be the good news about the Christ when he came. Habakkuk says famously in its second chapter that the righteous person will live, not by works, will live by faith. It is the Christ when he comes who makes that possible. It is faith in the Christ because of his work on the cross that means we can be made righteous by faith in what he has done. 
Zephaniah 3 predicted the Lord would remove the judgments against his people. He would dwell in her midst as, as her king. And like a shepherd, he would gather together the weak. This is what Christ would be and would do. In Haggai, the people had returned from exile to begin to rebuild the temple. And God promised that someday soon he would once more shake the heavens and the earth, fill his true temple with glory, and bring all the nations to it. This is what we're waiting for when Christ returns. Zechariah speaks of Christ entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Who did that? It says that he would be valued at 30 pieces of silver. Christ was by Judas. It says he would be looked upon as one who was pierced. Christ was. It says that he would be like a shepherd struck and all the others would scatter, which is what happened when he was arrested. And Malachi, the last of the 12, said that, remember Elijah, the prophet? That before the great day of the Lord came, Elijah would come first as a forerunner preparing the way for the Christ. And the Christ, who would be the Lord himself, would come suddenly into his temple. And Jesus said in the New Testament that John the Baptist was Elijah. He represented him and he was his forerunner. You still here? Still with me? Still good? This is a lot. I'm sure Jesus did this a lot better. We're moving now from the books of Moses, beginning with Moses, and the prophets, that's who we just saw, and as we'll see a little bit later in Luke 24, when Jesus appears to all his disciples, it says he tells them that everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms has to be fulfilled. The Psalms is the first biggest part of this last section, which is called the writings. So here we go. Beginning then with the Psalms. This is like Isaiah. We do not have time to go through the Psalms. There are so many prophecies about Christ in the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms, many of them written by David, who was a type of Christ. So, so much of this has to do with Christ. But to be selective, take, for example, just the second Psalm. It says, the rulers of the earth will gather together, take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. That's the word for Christ. Did the rulers of the earth gather against the Christ? Yes, they did. Herod, Pilate, everyone against Jesus. That's Psalm 2. Psalm 22, Jesus quoted from the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And giving it quite in detail long before crucifixion was practiced, the crucifixion of the Christ to come. He would suffer these things before he was glorified. And to pick another, Psalm 110, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. David was the greatest king of Israel. He didn't have a Lord. So how does Yahweh the Lord speak to his Lord? Who's greater than David? Who will sit at the right hand of God himself and God will glorify him by subjecting all his enemies under his feet. It is the Christ. Moving from the Psalms to the Proverbs. The Proverbs show that God has purposes, is just, has an orderly universe that he has created, which is necessary for us to remember 
if we're going to confidently believe his purposes in bringing the Christ through the chosen line will be fulfilled. That's in the Proverbs. But then we also need this correction in Job to balance Proverbs. This is an orderly universe. Things work a certain way because God's in control, but sometimes they don't. And God's still in control. There, is it possible for a righteous person to suffer horrible things not because of sin? And the answer of Job is yes. Job was righteous and he suffered because of the higher purposes of God that he didn't know about. Could this Christ who comes be pasted on a Roman cross and yet be innocent? Because we have Job, we know the answer is yes. In the Jewish ordering, the little book of Ruth comes afterward, which shows God's control in bringing the promised line. It's the story of King David's line coming through Ruth and Boaz, which God preserved. Then you have the son of David, Solomon, the song of Solomon, which is not just romantic fluff that's embarrassing, that's not the song of Solomon, among other things, Because of the New Testament, we know that marriage, Ephesians 5, was patterned after the Christ's love for his people. And therefore, the Song of Solomon shows us how powerful that love is. Powerful enough, you might even say, for the groom to die for his bride. Then Ecclesiastes, which like Job, balances the orderliness of the book of Proverbs and shows that there are many times injustice does prevail in this world. And you have to know that if you're going to believe that that man, that Christ upon the cross could suffer unjustly and not because God disapproved of him. He was innocent. The little book of Lamentations, Jeremiah the prophet weeps over Jerusalem's destruction and the Christ would weep over Jerusalem's destruction when he came. The book of Esther The Jewish people, the offspring through whom the one offspring would come, are about to be eliminated from the face of the earth. God's promises are at risk again, and yet God, through Esther, delivers his people in exile so that the one promised offspring, the Christ, can still come. The book of Daniel in chapter 7, one of the greatest prophecies about the Christ in the entire Bible, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. That's God. He was presented before him. And to him, the son of man. Is that familiar? The son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, as promised to David concerning the Christ. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And shortly afterward, Daniel even predicts gives you a number of years from the time that the Persian king Cyrus released the people from exile to the time that this son of man, this Christ would come. 483 years. Go look it up. No matter how you slice it, it puts you right in the proximity of the coming of Jesus. It couldn't be later. It couldn't be earlier. He tells you through his 70 weeks of years. Ezra and Nehemiah tell of the return of the people from exile, but there's this sense of longing. They've come back, but things are not fulfilled. 
Those who were older who saw the temple when it was rebuilt wept because they had seen the earlier temple and it seems this one had much less glory. There is a sense of longing in Ezra and Nehemiah. A king, a greater David needs to come and establish the people in the land so the people are still waiting. And lastly, at the end of the Jewish ordering of their Bible, you have First and Second Chronicles, just like First and Second Kings, the story of what happened after David, except with this difference. It tells not only of the corruption and decline of the people and their exile, but at the very end mentions their return from exile to set the stage with the offspring of Abraham back in their own promised land where Bethlehem is, waiting for the Christ that had been promised over and over again. One might even say, in all the scriptures, the things concerning Jesus. Now I am sure that Jesus' own explanation, interpretation of the Old Testament or Tanakh concerning himself was 10 million times better, but we don't have it recorded. That's the best that we can do right there. And we've only just gone over the surface. Who is, as we're walking with Jesus on the Emmaus Road, as we're trying to see more clearly by faith the Christ, is he just a person? When he's following after thousands of years of prophecies, who is the descendant of Eve who will crush the snake and be killed while doing it? Who is the offspring of Abraham who will deliver his people, even if, like his son Isaac, he must be put on the altar at Moriah, who will suffer and yet be glorified, and through him all the nations will be blessed. Who is the offspring of David, who will, like David, suffer and yet will sit upon his throne and reign forever? Who is the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel? Who is the suffering servant predicted in Isaiah chapter 53? Who is this person? Who is the Christ? Is he just a man, Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, died and that's the end of the story. Or by faith do you perceive that everything in the scriptures, all that the prophets predicted, find their fulfillment in none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So may it be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've not called us to believe in something odd or difficult to confirm, nonsensical, but here we have one of the oldest texts of humanity in every one of our Bibles, and over thousands of years, the whole expectation created in those texts can find their fulfillment nowhere but in Jesus of Nazareth. The timing has to be then, before the destruction of Jerusalem, when Daniel's 70 weeks foretold, the person has to be born in Bethlehem. He has to be a Christ who will reign forever, only possible if he's immortal. Every picture, every shadow 
throughout these many, many pages of our Old Testament you put in place to prepare us, to point us forward to Jesus. And so now here he is before us and often we confess we treat him as a rather inconsequential part of our lives. Lord, rebuke and change us. Help us to see that all of history is leaning down into this one person. He is the sum and the substance of all. He is the purpose toward which all of history moves. He is the one you prepared all things for, all things created for Him, through Him. All glory is aimed to go to Him. And if we have made Him in any way a secondary part of our lives, help us, Lord, to awaken from this foolishness where we are slow in heart to believe all that is written about Jesus. Awaken us from this slumber, and I pray, whatever we understand or do not, help us, Lord, completely and passionately, along with the fabric of all history, to lean into this person, Jesus Christ, who is your Son, who is everything. I pray you'd grant us faith to see this. And if anyone here sees him only as a man or has not been granted the gaze of faith, I pray even now you would open their eyes to see. Here is life, here and only here, and the summary of all your purposes. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen.